welcome back to the South American Football Show, where we look at all of the goings-on in South American football. And in particular, we love to follow the Copa Libertadores. And as the competition has reached its final stages, we've just had a final with some late drama. We're going to get into it. Um, we also look back at how the teams got there and some very dramatic uh, semi-finals. And then we'll look forward to the, the next tournament and any players who've stood out in this year's competition for us as well. So no Adam, no Austin. So I'm posting this week, uh, having to be a little bit more sensible or at least uh, try to be organised and we'll see how that goes. So bear with me. But I'm delighted to say I've got an excellent team. Uh, one regular who we have available today who's who's always excellent on Argentine football, Uruguayan football, and he knows surprisingly a lot about all other kinds of stuff as well. Tom, welcome back to the South American Football Show. Thank you, mate. It's good to be back and start the new year with, well, maybe not the most exciting game of football we've ever watched, but uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to discussing it with you guys and uh, yeah, uh, looking forward to crack on and, and look forward to another competition, which is, isn't too far off. Perfect. Excellent. And uh, the next uh, contributor today, uh, we've got Peter Galindo. You may have heard him on a few of our podcasts. He's a Peruvian um, based in Canada, but really follows football in South America and all over the place as well. Um, Peru Waltz, and uh, he also works as a scout. So he really keeps a close eye on some of these up-and-coming players and, and follows these competitions. So it's great to have Peter on. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Simon. Glad, glad to be on. Uh, I'm just actually happy that I can uh, provide a little bit of Peruvian representation in the latter stages of a Libertadores, uh, no matter what kind of capacity that's in, because it's been a while for Peru. Yeah, well, I'm Colombia. I'm in Colombia, and I focus on Colombia too. So I haven't had a lot of glory. Or 2016. We can always remember 2016, and I think for the time being, that will be the last uh, Colombian celebration we've had. But but we'll see what we can do. Uh, maybe next year, Peter. Maybe next year. There's always next year. <laughs> I'm also delighted to welcome for the first time on the show uh, Anna Evans, who follows South American football and is based in Brazil. Anna, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really lovely to be here the first time. Excited to talk about this all-Brazilian final and even more than that, an all-Sao Paulo final. So it was a really exciting moment for the city and for the state. So really excited to talk about it, what became of the final and moving forward. Perfect. Yes, yes. All right. All right. Yeah, Brazil got into the final. All right. <laughs> we'll give you a chance to enjoy that. I won't mention it again. Don't worry. Ah uh, no, it's fine. I'm just fine. We, we we love we love Brazilian football, but I particularly like seeing Brazilian teams lose. So uh, I'll I'll express my my bias, but I have to respect the the consistent quality that they show. Um, so before we talk about the final, let's talk a little bit for a moment about how they got there. Um, Santos, obviously, I think a team that perhaps kind of overachieved in this competition, uh, given the the limitations and the the, the small squad they had. Uh, Anna, what were your thoughts on? kind of this Santos side and, and getting to the final and, the, and their route there and their getting through that tricky semi-final? Yeah, I mean, Santos was a massive, massive overachiever. I don't think anyone, even the Santos fans, expected their team to get so far to the final. It was just unprecedented. People sort of predicted maybe a Brazilian team would win, but perhaps more Flamengo or Palmeiras, the ultimate champion. So Santos, a massive, massive overachiever in this year's competition. And yeah, that semi-final, like you said, the first the first um, match against Boca, the nothing-nothing draw, perhaps 
should have been the Santos win, that penalty uh, later in the game that wasn't given. But they really did steal it home when they went back to the, the Villa Belmiro and just sort of obliterated Boca Juniors in that second match. So, yeah, I mean, it was a tough road for Santos to, to get to the final, but, I mean, they made it somehow, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, throughout the competition, they had perhaps the more challenging group. Um, they, they won almost all of their games. They performed very well, very consistent, but they were quite tight games. They really had to, to overcome some difficult challenges on their route to the final, uh, which perhaps prepared them um, for some of these difficult games. Tom, what were your thoughts on Santos kind of making it to the final and, and some of the players that perhaps stood out for you in that the Santos side? Yeah, they were, they were the big underdogs, the big surprises, as, as Anna mentioned there. I think that what they were really good at was sort of building throughout the, the competition. I don't think they necessarily started off brilliantly and they weren't in the toughest of, of initial groups, although... You know, we saw Defensa y Justicia go on to win the Sudamericana, so maybe it was a little bit harder than we first thought um, at, at the time. But, you know, they, they struggled to get past um, LDU Quito um, and they just really, really grew in the quarters and the semifinals particularly. I think what they were great at were they kind of knew their limitations and they knew the moments to really go for the jugular. So particularly in, in that second, those second legs against... Gremio and, and Boca Juniors, they, they just had those moments where they they pressed aggressively and, and really took the game with that quick counter-attacking style that they, they had there with those Mavericks in the in the front line who could really change the game. And, and, and I think they kind of had that back-to-the-wall spirit that, that got them there because there's so much off-the-field turbulence and, and them sort of players falling out with the board, president getting impeached and just having no money or not allowed to make transfers. So it was, you know, you could see that was the makings of a, of a really good atmosphere within the squad. Um, but I think, yeah, maybe one fight just too many and, um, and got beaten by the, the sort of superior, more moneyed and, and deeper squad of, of Palmeiras in the end. But, you know, they were fantastic. I think Lucas Verissimo for me was... Um, definitely the best defender in the tournament and I think you could make a, a case for him being one of the best centre-backs um, in on the continent obviously getting that move to Benfica now um, but also Marinho took a lot of the limelight I'm sure we'll get onto him in, a little bit more and little Jefferson Soteldo as well creating the magic so you know those were probably the big names there but I think all, all throughout the squad you had a lot of committed guys and a lot of people who contributed it at different moments so um, yeah I won't I won't hog all the, the chat about Santos. I'll, I'll, I'm sure we'll be able to go further in depth about, uh, depth about some of those players as, as we discuss on the pod. Yeah, sure. I mean, we'll, we'll get into the final itself in a minute. Um, Peter, I just wanted to ask your, your opinion. So Santos have some interesting players, obviously, um, who have attracted a lot of attention. Uh, Kyle Giorgi, obviously, is, is one with his goals. Uh, and Jefferson Soteldo. With Soteldo, do you think he could do it in Europe? This is kind of the big question. Obviously, the talent is clear. He's very, very creative. He's, he's sharp. He's very technical. Uh, but he's a small guy. We're, we're talking about a really small guy. And that's put some teams off. And his, his rise to this position as one of the stars in South American football has not been maybe a conventional one. From Venezuela to Chile, two Chilean sides, and, and then to Santos, obviously a great traditional Brazilian side, but not one of the big money Brazilian sides at the moment. And do you think he could make the move to Europe? And how good is Caio Jorge? 
because he's been great in the Libertadores, but his numbers in the league aren't quite as good. What are your thoughts, Peter? Yeah, Sotelo, in that really throughout the entire knockout stage, I thought, kind of reminded myself and anybody else who watched him with the under-20s of Venezuela when he was coming through the ranks, he reminded us why we loved him so much and why he caught the eye so much. Because when everything was going through him, when he had that creative freedom, when him and Felipe Jonathan were combining on that flank, um, particularly in the semifinals, they were just unstoppable together. Um, so in terms of Sotelo actually maybe making the jump from here to to Europe, um, I really think it all depends on obviously where he lands. I think for any player, no matter where he, he goes, he needs to be in the right situation, in the right league, in the right system. That's why you maybe look at potentially him going to Spain as a possibility because it may not be as physical of a league. Um, but if he's given that freedom to sort of drift across the pitch and, and, and really do his thing, especially on the break where he was so, so dangerous, I think he could really settle in quite nicely. As for Kyle Giorgi, um, I mean, it, it is a paradox for him, right? Because given how many goals he had scored, and, and it kind of caught me by surprise as, as the competition was going, I'm like, oh, I wonder who the top scorer is. And like, I'd seen him kind of pop up on the score sheet here and there. And then I realized, oh my God, like he's actually one of the top scorers in the in the competition and then became the top scorer in the competition, obviously. Um, for me, I think it's just a case of he's a very clinical player for such a young age and he's so composed in front of goal. Um, and when you look at his expected goals too, like he's basically pretty much right in line with where he should be in terms of, you know, the goals to expected goals right now. So this really isn't a case of, oh, you know, what he did in the, in the Libertadores was almost impossible to repeat. He could probably do it again if he got similar chances to fall for him. But in terms of, I guess, how good he is, he is becoming quite a complete player already. Um, I feel like if you give him another year to play in Brazil, maybe show like, hey, can you become a more consistent scorer across all competitions? Maybe then even more clubs will start clamoring for him more than they already are, really. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I definitely think there's uh, there's some important qualities there, but I think we're gonna we can look at a few very interesting talents for uh, young players from this final. Um, but I, I think Kyle George is a, is a strange one because his overall contribution maybe isn't as evident as some of the excellent players that we, we've seen in the youth sides. But he's got those goals and and he's been trusted with an important important position in the side, which got the way to the Libertadores final. So. Obviously, there's reasons for hope. Uh, another player I really like for Santos is Sandri, the, the defensive midfielder. Um, just 18, 8, 17, 18 years old, very young, but a very smart, uh, tenacious defensive midfielder. Anna, let me ask you about Palmeiras. Um, I, I have always tipped Palmeiras to get to the final and win the Copa Libertadores because traditionally they've been really, really ugly. And, uh, you know, I, I maybe it's the, the pessimist in me. Who, who thinks that the team that plays the ugly, effective football is going to come out on top. Um, but this year, they, they had a bit more about them. There was a bit more flair. There was some good youth. Uh, what were your impressions on uh, Palmeiras and their route to the final? Yeah, really good point there. I think a lot sort of had to do, maybe not a lot, but some of it had to do with the manager. I mean, you had Abba Ferreira come in in November and he really, really, really put a lot of faith in those youth players. You had Gabriel Menino, Danilo, uh, Patrick Paula, all in the midfield. And he really let them sort of run loose, perhaps, and let them sort of create the way that they wanted to. 
and place less pressure perhaps than another manager might have done. And so I think him as a manager really, really did help Palmeiras in the end, to be honest. Absolutely. And Tom, it was never in doubt against River Plate, 3-0 up. Of course they were going to get through to the final. It was easy, right? <laughs> well, you would have thought so after that amazing first leg. But um, it was it was a really a, a game of two ties because River came, came back really strongly, 1-2-0, had a few sort of VAR decisions that were, were probably right but uh, you know on another day uh, a diff- an inch difference here on an offside call or, or a different uh, referee perhaps and and they could have rallied and, and got through so what I mean I, I, I agree with you in terms of Palmeiras feel like they've been building for a little while now and they've got the resources behind them and a, a fantastic manager as well to to have gone all the way but those last two games really sort of leave me with a few question marks in my in my mind because I think in the last two games they only had one shot on target and that was the goal that they scored in the 99th minute so part of me thinks on one hand they've they've you know almost mucked it up in in you know the the two crucial games but then you look at them and they're the joint top scorers in the in the competition with 33 goals and so I'm kind of thinking on one hand are they are they flat track bullies who just got through a a really easy group and and sort of a fairly kind route to the final until they got to the semi-finals at least anyway or are they kind of smart versatile pragmatists who who know to when to turn it on and when to be a bit more resilient and um, defense minded and i think we definitely saw that in the final both both teams looking like they didn't really want to lose and that being the kind of main principle behind the, the styles they set out so while I think Palmeiras are deserved champions, maybe the way they finish the tournament doesn't mean that they're going to go down as as one of the most memorable. Yes, it was it was a a lot of fun the game against River, um, and I think many neutrals uh, will have been willing uh, River over the line uh, for how they played. But you know, the Palmeiras did get a very comprehensive win in the first first leg and played some good stuff. And um, Peter, with this Palmeiras side. They they were organised. They had a bit of the Felipe Melos about them, um, but they also uh, they also did have a bit more this year. And you know who stood out for you in the Palmeiras side uh, this year? I mean, Gabriel Menino is obviously the the star man. Gabriel Vieira as well. Who who are your kind of picks for this Palmeiras side in the competition? Well, I don't think you can really go wrong with any of the young players that I think play pivotal roles in Palmeiras winning the whole thing. Um, but I think the two for me that maybe stood out a little bit for, I guess, more under the radar type reasons, just because I think it allowed them to deploy the system possible to get to this point, um, were Patrick and Danilo, because I thought that positioning wise, when it came to, to snuffing out danger, no matter who it was, maybe obviously in one or two games, they weren't maybe at their best completely just in terms of their distribution, in terms of uh, their composure in general on the ball. But I thought that defensively they played pivotal roles in Balmedas being so difficult to defeat, Um, particularly in that first leg of the semifinal. Um, Like they were all over the place. The, the, The one, I guess, criticism I would have is that there were times when Patrick wouldn't maybe help cover the left side when there was a clear area to expose there. Um, but otherwise I thought they were both really, really good. And 
you know, considering that they were both, what, 19 and 21, I think, respectively. Um, just really, really good, calm performances from two young players, and especially in positions that can be very, very difficult to, to really thrive in. Absolutely. Okay, uh, Anna, so um, let's talk about the final. It always feels that we've been kind of trying to avoid it because it wasn't quite the spectacle we hoped for. Um, but let's, let's get into it. 180 countries around the world available, able to watch it live on TV, an early kickoff, Europe all tuning in to watch the Copa Libertadores final. What's all the fuss about? You know, these English guys on this podcast keep going on about this competition. Let's give it a go. Uh, Anna, tell me, was it the spectacle we'd all hoped for? No. In a very blunt and honest answer, not at all, to be honest. I mean, it's, it was probably the ugliest final that I've ever seen in a match. It didn't provide any of that sort of Libertadores magic that people watch this competition for. A fan who is not familiar with South American football will watch the Libertadores because of the stories of the the penalty shootouts, the pressure, the goals. Just the final, well, two years ago now, but last year in the competition in 2019, you know, you had those Flamengo late goals against River. We all wanted the drama especially between um, two Brazilian sides and two sides that are quite big rivals within the domestic league. And so it was nothing, nothing what we had expected. And especially from the perspective uh, perspective of Santos, they really wanted this competition because they were the underdogs to start off with. But also, had they won, they would have been the ultimate Brazilian Libertadores champion. They would have won four. Uh, but unfortunately, it wasn't to be for Santos this time, but maybe next year. And uh, you, I mean, the, the way we saw the teams, I, I think, as Tom mentioned, um, it, both teams kind of came out not to lose. Do you think that's the, the pressure of the game or, or the weather? It, it did seem very hot down there in Rio for the for the game at the Maracanã. Yeah, I mean, I think the temperatures in Rio hit about 37, 38 degrees. And within the Maracanã also, with that sort of curving roof, it would have been like being in a cauldron, essentially. So, yeah, and the whole thing about not losing, another thing maybe to do with the pressure of the sort of the intensity of the the two teams playing against each other. There was a lot of pressure from the media, for the coaches, to really, really not lose essentially that was the aim and now that the the final has sort of changed to this one final it's like the be all and end all you can't mess it up so maybe that pressure got to them and we got the final that we got because of this yeah perhaps uh tom is it is it this one one-off final is that is that the reason that we had this game i mean they've always been kind of intriguing uh games the finals we've had these one-off finals um and they seem to be decided late on was it uh, was it the the changes that palmeiras had and uh, why do you think palmeiras were able to get over the line and, and why do you think it was what it was <laughs> well of course it's you know a portuguese manager winning it late on for a brazilian side after not not a great game that's that's how you win these libertadores now uh, uh, simon it's uh, that's that's just that's just the way it's going to be so i think if any brazilian side wants the higher Jose Mourinho or I don't know Marco Silva or someone like that then you, you can put their name on the trophy already but uh, all joking aside I think it was a you know a mixture of the, the uh, reasons sort of mentioned by Anna there and, and it is a really good point as well about the the one-off game 
maybe affecting the, the way the, the, the teams approach it. Because, I mean, I think the way that we've always seen the two-legged finals was, was more from a, a fan's point of view in terms of giving both sets of supporters a chance to, you know, support their team in a final and, and just having a little extra dynamic to it. But I think it's it's definitely something that we've seen now after we've had a few of these one-off finals and it's yeah it's to the kind of detriment of the of the spectacle and i, I think you see that in a, in a lot of finals one-off finals um in, in big tournaments around the world so that definitely had something to do with it you know the long season the weather fear of losing two managers who maybe go for that cautious cautious approach over over really letting it all go and it all kind of tied together for that really really dull spectacle but you know it, it, there was a bit of uh, drama at the end at least with uh, with Kuka getting sent off which I thought was a little bit too harsh I mean yeah he was probably trying to waste a bit of time but almost didn't get a chance to so maybe it was you know uh, a preemptive red card almost for, for his intentions rather than what he actually did um, and you know then obviously that that absolutely brilliant header at the end I think it Breno Lopez is someone who's He's got quite an interesting backstory in, in the fact that he's been in City C, City B for most of his career. I don't think he's been named in the uh, the squad for the World Club Cup as well, which seems really harsh. But, you know, it, it was at least um, a goal worthy of, of winning a final and a really good assist from Ronnie as well, who, for me, I think is probably the player of the tournament because not only his numbers stack up in terms of, um, what is it, sort of, five goals and eight assists or something like that um but just his general play I always felt like he was the man most likely to and he's been someone who I think is maybe a bit undervalued in terms of he's been performing really well for a couple of certainly the last couple of years and I always liked him at Atletico Paranaense and he's someone who's young enough that you think yeah maybe this guy rather than someone like Mourinho is 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 going to be the one who, who could get a move not necessarily to Europe, but um, maybe maybe somewhere else. So yeah, it was not a great final, but um, you know, let's it, it can't get much worse. Let's look, look at it on a positive light, Simon. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough, Peter. What were your thoughts on the final? It just seemed that everyone was scared to to take two touches or to make a mistake. Uh, you know, it, part of it was tactical, but for me, I think players who we've seen. Uh, Move the ball and progress the ball really well under pressure. Were suddenly looking like Sunday League players trying to get it clear. You know, I was massively received, relieved to see the the goal, and not because I'm a Palmeiras fan or that I tip Palmeiras in the World Football Index predictions. Just to get that one me, in there. Me too, mate. Um, me too. Well, have... <laughs> there we go. It finally paid off. If I just, if I just keep picking Palmeiras, eventually I'll be right. Um, but I was relieved to see that goal in because I, I couldn't I couldn't stand any more of it. <laughs> Peter, what what are your thoughts on the final? Did you enjoy Did you enjoy it more than I did? Or um, I, I think I agree with everybody else. Look, it, it wasn't a grand spectacle of a final. I think more often than not, when you get these massive marquee matches with so much on the line, they're probably going to disappoint just because they'll want to play it cautious, and especially with two sides like Sanchez and Palmeiras because. Obviously, both thrived on the break, so they didn't want to give away any space to basically get countered on, which, you know, look, if if you are a coach and you are looking at this like, all right, what is the best way to essentially avoid getting hit and to kind of keep ourselves in the game? That's probably the one way. 
And look, if they want to play that way, then then let them be. I'm I'm totally for it. Like obviously they're not there to please fans. They're there to win. I don't think Palmeiras fans will ultimately care. I think too too much um, that they ended up winning it maybe by grinding out the result and, and hitting them late. Um, but I thought overall, you know, it was basically what I expected. I, I wasn't able to watch it live. I had to watch it later on in the day. Um, and I saw the score and then I saw some people on, on WhatsApp and whatnot talking about it. And I thought, well, yeah, that's pretty much how I thought it was going to play out. So no big deal. And it translated when I watched it, it later. So <laughs> uh, overall, it was, you know, I think it was what it was. I, I'm not going to begrudge either coach or any of the players for essentially having it play out that way. But I guess just from the neutral, from the fan perspective, you probably would have wanted to see more. And uh, also a good thing that I didn't watch this game live because I probably wouldn't have been able to have taken the, you know, superior behavior from, you know, English pundits on Twitter and stuff like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. very, a very brave yeah. man to know how bad the final was and still go ahead and, and watch it on, on delay. But yeah, it was it was a bit unfortunate that the, the Neil Custises of, the, of this world were... Uh, maybe somewhat justified in, in, in their scorn that they, they threw on it. But, um, oh, well, it's just, uh, it's just a badge of honour that us true fans will have to wear, I suppose. OK, let's look back at the competition as a whole, pick out any teams that impressed us, kind of let us down a little bit, and maybe some players who have kind of increased their, their stock or maybe got their move already to Europe as a result of the competition. So let's start with the negative, because that's kind of where we where I feel, at least after that final, a bit flat. Uh, but hey, you know, congratulations to Palmeiras. They won't care. <laughs> they have their second second Libertadores title. So congratulations, a good achievement for, for the club. And they'll play the Club World Cup, World Club Cup, that one, uh, this week, which is obviously a big deal for them as well. So we'll see how they do uh, first with the Mexicans, and hopefully they'll hope to play the, the final against the Bayern Munich. So that's a big opportunity for Palmeiras. I'm sure the Palmeiras fans won't mind uh, us grumbling over the way they got there. But let's look back. And first of all, um, Anna, any teams in this competition who let you down? Now, almost all the Brazilian teams got through, um, which is depressing. And congratulations. Sao Paulo didn't, though. Uh, what, we, what happened with Sao Paulo? Um, and were there any other teams were which kind of disappointed you a little bit in this competition? Um, yeah, good point there with Sao Paulo. I mean, I suppose Sao Paulo is like the opposite of some of the teams that you see in the Libertadores. They do very well in the Libertadores, but terrible in the domestic league. And so Sao Paulo has been doing very well up until maybe one month ago. Let's not talk about what happened to them in January, but Sao Paulo was doing very well in the Brasileirão. They were consistently first or second place. So I'm not sure what happened, to be perfectly honest. I think maybe a focus on the domestic league over the Libertadores because what you tend to get in Brazil with the intense competition um, for championships and for trophies is you get teams tend to focus on one competition uh, at a time. And so perhaps a shift in focus for Sao Paulo a team that disappointed me was Flamengo, without a doubt, because I think people expected a lot more from Flamengo, not just because they are the current champions. Um, perhaps this was a detriment for them because no team has won the Libertadores uh, twice in a row, back-to-back, since Boca did it about 20 years ago, I think in the early 2000s. And so I really I really expected more from, from Flamengo. They have an exceptionally talented squad with, you know, some 
Brazilian national team players are there, but they just really, really, really couldn't get going. And they just sort of fell out in the last 16 against Racing, despite being the overwhelming favourites there. So really expected a lot more from Flamengo. I'm not sure. Maybe if it was because of the the shift in coaching, you had the Jorge Jesus who left sort of halfway and then you had uh, Torrent from Spain come in and now you have Seni. It's a, a lot of mix, but they were a disappointed, disappointment for me, no doubt. Okay, Peter, Peter, while we're talking about disappointments, uh, you can imagine it's not a coincidence I'm going to the Peruvian expert. Um, <laughs> so somehow the team, the Peruvian side that recorded the most points was also the side that had a minus 22 goal difference. Uh, what happened with Binacional? Is it just because they didn't have their altitude? And Alianza Lima um, found themselves three points behind Estudiantes de, de Merida in what I thought was a really quite a poor group. I thought Estudiantes were actually one of the more interesting sides in that group. So, Peter, what, what happened? What happened, Peter? Um, classic Peruvian things in continental competition. Um, like that's as simple as I can make it without, you know, adding another hour to this episode, Simon. Um, quite frankly, Binacional, I think were doomed as soon as we found out they weren't going to be playing in Juliaca. Um, cause obviously Sao Paulo struggled mightily up there, obviously started well, but then the altitude as it often does for Brazilian clubs caught up to them. Um, and then Binacional pounced in the second half as they that was probably going to be their strategy for the entirety of the group stage uh, if everything had continued as normal, but obviously it did not. And frankly, they were just, I mean, they basically gave up at that point and they had a COVID outbreak at, when Liga Uno restarted and that didn't help either. Um, then they lost um, Aldair uh, Rodriguez to, ironically, to a, a club in Colombia. And then that kind of spiraled from there and they were just kind of hopeless. As for Alianza, um, look, I think a lot of people in Peru were somewhat optimistic when the group stage was drawn and when you saw the potential that they, maybe they could squeak into a Sudamericana place and at least stay in Conmebol competition, that obviously didn't happen because we all made one grave mistake and that is believing that Alianza can do anything in Conmebol competition these days. They haven't won in like 14 or 15 years now, I believe. Um, in the Libertadores, which is just atrocious for a club of that size. And obviously, no surprise, they ended up getting relegated later on because they were a club without a tactical plan really throughout the entire year. It almost looked like they just threw something on a wall and saw whatever stuck and they were like, all right, we'll go with this for today. Um, there was no semblance to their game plans. Um, and a lot of young players, I think, really suffered, specifically guys like Osling Mora and Gruybert Aguilar, the uh, Manchester City-bound uh, right-back, who just is about to turn 18 years old here. Um, players like that really suffered with just the disorganization and the chaos at Alianza. And honestly, I think they got what was coming to them by getting relegated. But I think the uh, Estudiantes de Merida debacle, I think, sort of summed up their 2020 in a nutshell, really. Okay, yes. Well, I mean, to give a bit of love to Estudiante de Mira, I thought they were pretty good. They were, obviously, you know, they were miles off qualification in the end, but they were competitive throughout. Tom, the Argentinian team did pretty well. Uh, Tigre um, making up the numbers, (laughs) I think you could say. We suspected they might be a bit rubbish, and they they were a bit rubbish. Um, But, you know, Racing got through. Um, Defensa y Justicia, obviously, unlucky to miss out. 
What are your thoughts on the Argentine sides and were there anyone else who disappointed you? What about Barcelona? We had high hopes for Barcelona and they even ended up behind Junior. <laughs> yeah, no, not great, but at least Fidel Martinez filled his boots while, it, while he could. Um, but no, in, in terms of the Argentinian clubs, I, I, don't, I don't really see it as that much of a disappointment because I, I don't think I really had you know, Boca or River as, as flat out favourites that like they, they maybe have been in previous years. Yes, both clubs will definitely be disappointed. That's just the nature of, you know, huge uh, continental giants. Nothing but a trophy um, is, is going to be enough, basically. So, um, yeah, certainly I think you can you can look at River's performance in the, in the first leg and particularly um, Carrascal, his his decision there to to make that really rash tackle that got um, got him sent off and led to that third Palmeiras goal. I think you look back on that and think if he hadn't done that, then River might have got through. So that's probably a bit of a regret there. But generally speaking, I think River did very well and, and were just edged out by a very good team. Boca, yes, they'll again, I think they'll feel disappointed by the way they, they performed in the semi-finals. But again, as much as they're a very good team and they're consistently getting to the, the semis of this competition, they were kind of just missing that X factor. I feel like maybe the new manager bounce uh, they had under Russo has, has maybe drained away somewhat and they, they were really lacking in ideas. They were so predictable in, in how they set up and, and how they tried to attack opponents. So I didn't, re- yeah, I didn't really expect either of those sides to, to, to necessarily win. Racing, after they beat Flamengo, I, th- I think we could have maybe expected a little bit more from them. Um, but again, quarterfinals felt about right for them. And and it just generally, it wasn't the strongest cohort of Argentinian clubs. I think looking forward to next season, that there's a, a much better group that are, g- are going to be contesting the Libertadores. So I think we'll see maybe more things from, from Argentinian clubs next season. In terms of other clubs that kind of disappointed me, uh, that it's, it's hard to say really, because on one hand, teams like Nacional, what impressed me in the early stages and and I thought they were really solid and were looking like they were going to be maybe not your typical Nacional but then they just reverted to type and and really stunk out the place in the in the knockout stages so they were kind of initially a nice surprise and then a bit of a disappointment because I'd built my hopes up that they were going to be something different and you could almost say the same for Independiente del Valle they were brilliant in stages but then also shocking in, in other games and and they just didn't have that cutting edge against Nacional in, in one of the most one-sided uh, couple of games that you, you'll ever see really they had so many chances but just couldn't put it away so that, that's a disappointment that they didn't go further um, but I guess um, yeah you could look at again Colombia and in, in, in Chile maybe that's why Adam isn't on the pod anymore he can't hack having to discuss yet more Chilean failures in the Libertadores, but um, I'll pass back over to you to to break down where the Colombians went all wrong, Simon. <laughs> well, look, Junior got into the Sudamericana, so that's a that's a thing. Um, yeah, no, Colombia Colombian sides perform really poorly. I mean, with Junior, it's always the same. They've always got good players. They always um, have some good high profile. They've always got an experienced side. Teofilo Gutierrez is always there. They signed Miguel Borja, so. Um, before the, the the competition began, you know, Colombian television was saying um, who they were asked who will go through from Group A, and they go Flamengo and Junior. Independiente del Valle don't exist. 
So it gives you an idea how uh, separated from reality uh, some of the, the Colombian pundits are. Um, and, and when things go badly, it will all be put down to hierarchia and, and, and toughness and, oh, they should have tried harder. <laughs> no, they should have been better. They should have had some ideas. So Junior, for me, plenty of quality uh, across the pitch, but a lack of ideas and, and you know, just a, the constant changing of the manager. Perea came in and looked quite good in the Sudamericana. They eventually were knocked out in the Sudamericana with two players on the bench uh, because of COVID, which is unfortunate. They could have perhaps won that competition, um, which would have given me a little bit of hope. Um, but uh, Junior, once again, very, very disappointing. They, they finished bottom of their group last time with like one point. Um, and they didn't do much better this time. So, yeah, Junior's not great. Independiente Medellin, again, they've got some good youngsters, but they they had lost some key players during the tournament. Herman Cano had just left to Brazil, where he did very, very well. Um, and uh, Ricarte went off to move the board as well. So Medellin looked, never looked like they were in that group at all. Um, America de Cali were disappointing. Obviously, they were the side that were... In the end, only a couple of points away from qualifying, but did end up finishing bottom. I think perhaps the most well-balanced side um, with kind of their 4-3-3, Duvan on the left. It looked better um, on, in theory, but they fell behind the Chilean side, and that's never good. If, you're, if you finish behind the Chilean side in the Libertadores, you're probably bottom of the group. <laughs> I can get that little dig in because Adam's not here today. So, um yeah, though, that for me, the Colombian was all disappointment. But in terms of some of the gooder, the more positive stories, just before we move on to, to look at some players and then and look ahead to next year where we can all have foolish optimism once again. Um, any teams that really did impress you, Anna, in the in the competition, maybe surprised you? Obviously, you had a load of Brazilians in the knockout stage, so that's nice. But uh, but that aside, any any other teams that, that, that impressed you? Um, out of the Brazilian sides, I mean... Honestly, I think Santos was a massive uh, shock and not a shock necessarily because of a lack of talent, but because what they did with that talent, what they did with, with what they had. And so for me, I think Santos was the the big success story from Brazil. Maybe I'm a bit biased because I support Santos a lot more than I support Palmeiras, but I think they were the standout team in terms of what they did um, with what they had in the competition, definitely, from a Brazilian perspective, that is. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Peter, any other teams? I mean, Libertad did, did, a, did a great job. Jorge Wilstermann finished top of their group, which is amazing. Uh, King Eddie doing the business at the back and uh, and uh, a rotund Brazilian striker, if I remember correctly, banging in the goals up top. They were a lot of fun. Although Libertad as well um, ended up beating them emphatically 5-1 and held Palmeiras in the in the first leg before falling apart in the quarterfinal. So impressive for Libertad. Who are your kind of, you know, Paraguayan sides in general? Guarani as well got through, uh, beaten by Gremio. What about you, Peter? Any other, any teams that impressed you, perhaps outside of Brazil and Argentina? No, I was actually going to say Libertad, actually. Um, they were surprisingly uh, very, very effective. And usually one or two of, of the Paraguayan sides tend to, uh, I don't want to say overachieve, but I guess make a deep run and, and play some really good stuff at the at the same time. Um, and, and when you look at some of their standouts, especially in that um, tie with Wilstermann, um, you know, obviously, uh, r- really the entire midfield I thought was was really really solid and integral to 
to them getting as far as they did. Um, and, you know, kudos to them for, for getting there, you know, because it's always nice to have, I guess, different teams from, you know, outside of the big two making runs in the competition. Obviously, they they didn't get all the way to, you know, the semifinals and the final, but, you know, it is nice to have a little bit of variety there. So kudos to them. Okay, sounds good. And uh, so let's look at a couple of players before we move on to, to next year. Um, Tom, I- I'm going to grab the first one and the most obvious choice. I'm, Moises Caicedo, what a player he is. He's off to Brighton, four million pounds. Oh, let me let me begin my rant about how much he would cost if he was Brazilian. You know, add, add two zeros to that, <laughs> 400 million pounds. Um, no, but what a, what a performance. What a year from Moises Caicedo. Began the year uh, in the Copa Libertadores under 20s. Um, the next day he went off to the Copa Libertadores and scored a, a great long distance effort. Um, he's just incredible. Very, very intelligent. Can defend, can attack, can win the ball, can progress the ball, can dribble, can do everything. So, uh, first of all, I'm going to grab Moises Caicedo, dismantling last year's champions. Unfortunate, uh, Independiente del Valle couldn't do more. But I think we can confidently say that Independiente del Valle have secured a position as one of the the top teams in South American football. They, they've done it consistently. They got to a Libertadores final. They won a Sudamericana. So um, we'll just watch out to see which coaches, uh, which pundits um, dismiss Independiente del Valle as nobody's this year. And uh, they really should be getting the, getting the sack <laughs> at this point. Um, but apart from Moises, who I've grabbed, Tom, who else impressed you as kind of an emerging young talent in this year's competition? Yeah, well, very kind of you to to steal that one off off my lips there. <laughs> he, I mean, obviously, Caicedo has been incredible. It's, it's mad to think that with this sort of year that we've had, that where times almost felt like it stood still a lot of the time, that he's gone from being someone who many people have probably never heard of to being one of the most exciting midfielders in, in South America. So, yeah, he, he was great. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, uh, Verissimo, Ronnie, these were guys who were among the best players in in the tournament. But um, there were a couple of guys at Nacional who, who really stood out um, from more from the defensive side than anything. Uh, Rochette, the goalkeeper, I thought was was brilliant. And he, he had a great game in the Clásico against Peñarol the other day as well. Um, he really kept them in. And I think he was a big reason why Nacional beat um, Independiente de Valle, as well as Caicedo missing uh, that that game as well. Um, so he was great. Um, I also really liked their defensive partnership of La Boda and uh, Orihuela. I thought those guys were, were both really fantastic. Um, but yeah, for, from an Argentinian point of view, there, there wasn't a ton of young players who stood out. Uh, Julian Alvarez in, in the early stages, I think really... Um, underlined his potential after maybe people had a few doubts about him. Um, and he looks like now he is ready to kick on and, and be a really exciting prospect for for River. And uh, one player from Racing that, that I thought quite, did quite well um, in the moments he was on was um, Carlos Alcaraz, young midfielder. Showed a lot of personality in in uh, the games against uh, Flamengo and, and the shootouts. Um, really, really think he's someone who... who who in a couple of years' time could be a, a really exciting player. So, yeah, one of the best things about this tournament is there's there's loads of great young players. I mean, just look at the final itself. Palmeiras and Santos both had, you know, a handful each of guys who are, who are going to go right to the top. So, um, yeah, it's uh, one of the, the best things about this tournament still. 
Yeah, absolutely. And while we're talking independence and Valle, uh, Angelo Preciado as well was was very impressive. Not not the youngest, mm-hmm. but a lot of a lot of potential still there. And he's joined Genk with Carlos Cuesta, with uh, John Lucami, with Daniel Munoz. You know, they basically buy all the players I would like to buy as a football manager. And uh, Preciado definitely falls into that category as well. An excellent player. And a quick mention for a Venezuelan I thought was really good um, at Caracas. Contreras um, scored a, an incredible goal against Medellin. Uh, as they as they won three two away, a uh, very good playmaker, a very interesting player as well. Uh, and Estudiante de Merida, uh, a lot of players came through there, uh, who looked very good. Uh, Edison, uh, Edison, I'll come back, come back to me, I'll get his name. Um, and Rivas. while I'm thinking, they were all, they were all called Rivas. Oh, Simon. Yeah, that's right, Rivas. That's good. <laughs> the the Rivases all look very good. Um, particularly Edison, he was my standout Rivas for Estudiante de Merida. Um, Anna, I'll come to you. Um, who was your who was your latest wonder kid? Uh, perhaps Brazilian, perhaps not. Who were your favourite young players in this year's competition? Um, yeah, well, perhaps not young in terms of what Brazil considers young. I mean, I feel like in order to be a young player in Brazil, you have to be at least 17 or 18 years old. But for me, Rony or Rony was fantastic. I mean, I think he's around 25, 26. So still definitely has a, has a lot of future ahead of him. But I thought he was very, very, very good. I mean, he came over from um, Paranaense at the beginning of 2020 uh, in February. And there was a lot of doubt around him. People weren't really sure, you know, where he would fit in. But he really, really, really came into his own in this competition. He provided some really crucial moments for Palmeiras throughout the, the whole competition. I mean, I think he was, yeah, he was the number one for the assists. I think he had about nine or ten assists in the, in the competition, as well as having five goals to his name as well. And so he really began the competition maybe as a little bit of an outlier, perhaps, uh, for Palmeiras in the competition. He came off the bench, I think, uh, against Tigre in one of those really early group stage matches and provided the assist and a goal. And then after that, I feel he just continued and continued to to strengthen as a player in this competition. And I honestly thought that he he would win the, the player of the tournament as opposed to, to Marinho, but I guess it's the battle of the, the two number 11s there from the final. So for me, it was him, definitely, definitely good player. Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely a, another move uh, for him in his future if he continues to play like this. He's, he's definitely a difference maker, very, very skillful, very effective. And Peter, what about you? Who are some of your standout youngsters? Uh, between us, we've grabbed quite a few, but anyone else you'd like to mention? Well, you mentioned um, Preciado Simon, and I'm going to go to another fullback, um, ironically from the champions. Matias Vigna, I thought, was tremendous. Um all tournament long and, and, and such a dangerous fullback going forward. I feel like, um, you know, he was every time I watched Palmeiras, there he was like, boom, you know, just popping up and, and whenever you needed him. Um, and then another Uruguayan, I thought who was very good. Um, Nicolas de, de la Cruz, um, for river. He was amazing for them. I thought that at times he was really the only player attacking wise who was making things happen. Um, you know, and much like we were talking about Sotelo earlier, he was another player who really caught my eye when he was playing for the under-20s of Uruguay. 
and was doing really well. And he kind of reminded me why I liked him so much at that time. Um, you know, a player who was, who was truly breathtaking on the ball. And then lastly for me, um, Mateo Sanrique, another player who um, I've been monitoring for a couple of years, plays for Gremio, deep-lying midfielder, silky, silky smooth on the ball, uh, very composed under pressure, good orchestrator, um, yet again doing his thing. Um, you know, th- there seems to be no weakness in his game whenever I watch him, especially in these massive Libertadores matches, and, and that just kind of adds to his spectacle. Okay, sounds good. Hey, like guys, let's look forward again to the next competition, which is already just around the corner. We have the draw will have almost certainly been made by the time uh, you hear this for the first qualifying round. We have three qualifying rounds. Uh, the first one's just a few games and then eight games in the next one. So uh, we've got quite a few teams who are fighting for a place in this year's competition. But in terms of the teams who've already qualified, uh, let's look ahead, see if we've got a bit of optimism, see if we can get a Peruvian winner this year, finally, what we've all been after. So <laughs> I'll start, let's have a look at the Colombians. Uh, we've got America de Cali, um, their sole striker is is Aldair, who hasn't set the world on fire, despite coming from the uh, the renowned Binacional, who uh, obviously we all enjoyed last year. So they're lacking perhaps a number nine, uh, but I do think they have decent balance and good width. It will depend a lot if Duvan Vergara stays on. They're obviously keen to sell him perhaps five, five, six million dollars they're hoping to get. Um, we'll see if they can get anywhere near that and if they hold on to him or not. Santa Fe have recruited really well. Um, Sherman Cardenas is an eternal favourite of mine. Um, a good experienced playmaker. They've also um, brought in some good players. Michael Rangel, although he's already left. He's played two games and then left, actually. That's true. Um, but Santa Fe look better they look less Santa Fe than usual, which means they're probably more attractive, but probably less effective. But we'll see how they do. Uh, Junior, as always, have lots and lots of very, very good players, but will be almost certainly a massive disappointment. Teofilo Gutierrez and his mates versus the world. Um, Teofilo trying to play as a number nine, which he can't do in Libertadores. But we'll see. Hopefully they prove me wrong. Maybe we'll get some goalkeeper goals from Sebastian Vieira. And then Atletico Nacional who I think have some very good players, some very good young players. Uh, Jesson Mosquera, for me, is um, the next Davinson Sanchez, a, a very, very good central defender, uh, good height, physicality, maturity, very interesting. Nacional are kind of in the post-Osorio era. Um, they're trying to be slightly more sensible and trying to make sense a little bit tactically. So that's a huge transition um, from what they had over the last couple of years. Um, playing six fullbacks and none of them at fullback, for example. Uh, Osorio, Osorio uh, is, a, is a character. Um, so I'm not hugely confident in the Colombians. I think there'll be some narratives, but I, I wouldn't expect a Colombian winner. Um, Peter, what about the Peruvians? This year, this is the year for Peru, no? Well, you know, we say this tongue-in-cheek, Simon, and maybe I'm making yet another mistake in being optimistic about a Peruvian club, but, you know, I really like what Sporting Cristal have done. Um, You know, they've kept uh, Roberto Mosquera around, which I think was really crucial Um, ever since he came in. They've just lit up the league, um, and I feel like 
especially given that they brought in Alejandro Holberg. They've kept Gianfranco Chavez and Martin Tabara, who were both uh, drawing a lot of interest from abroad, I think is going to be crucial because if they do well in the Libertadores, that's going to get them an even higher fee if and when they get sold. Um, but I, I really like the the moves that they've made. They brought in uh, Percy Prado, who was supposed to be a full Peru international at this point, but the pandemic kind of put a pause to that. He's going to bolster the midfield and right back. Um Really, in general, they've just been able to keep every key player, and then they've added in certain positions, which I think will give them a real advantage in the competition. La U, I'm a little bit less uh, confident in just because of who they've lost, um, and not to mention the fact that um, you know that they haven't really made any real big changes. I guess Alex Balera, the young striker who got a couple Peru call-ups, was signed. I think he could do well there, but otherwise. Um, they lost Donald Millan. They lost Holberg already. Um, I'm really not too, too confident in their chances. And then when it comes to the to the other two teams, the the potential qualifiers, Ayacucho, I feel, could be in serious trouble. Because um, yet again, much like Binacional, um, they overachieve. And then they end up losing a bunch of guys and having to replenish the squad on such short notice. Um, they lost their coach. They lost a couple of key players, including top scorer uh, Mauricio Montes. They've brought in um, Gerardo Amelie, the former coach, uh, his assistant to take over. So you feel like system-wise and everything else, it might stay the same. And certainly their signings have indicated it's going to stay the same. But when you sign a bunch of ex-Alianza players, I'm not so sure if that's exactly a winning strategy, if you ask me. Um, But I'm not... Too, too confident on them. They're going to start in the second round. But uh, Cesar Vallejo, who is uh, coached by former Peru coach uh, Chemo del Solar, I think could actually do pretty well. They brought in uh, former Lau player Donald Millan. They have kept everybody around. I think they could maybe cause a surprise or two. I don't think they'll make it past the second round, but I certainly think they can get out of the first round 100%. Okay, well, we'll see, we'll see. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. This is the year, this is the year for Peru. How could I How could I mention Atletico Nacional's youth and not mention the new Juan Pablo Angel, Thomas Angel, 17 years old, made his debut one day older than his dad as well. So this is this is his year, but he's actually a really, really good player. So watch out for him. Uh, uh, now breaking into the side, they've got Duque, they've got Alves, uh, and they've also got um, uh, Thomas Angel. So... And let's go Nacional in, in a couple of years may have Thomas Angel and also the son of Victor Aristizabal, one of the great Libertadores players for Nacional. So they could have the, 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 the second coming of two of their legends. Oh, there's some optimism. Tom, are you excited about Thomas Angel? And what about the Argentines this year? Uh, what do you think of their chances? Oh, I'm very excited about Tommy Goal. Um, and I'm looking forward to him. <laughs> donning the claret and blue of Aston Villa in the future as well. So I'll be keeping a, a beady eye on him. Hopefully he can uh, replicate what his father did for us. Um, but yeah, the Argentinian clubs, like I said before, um, are looking really um, strong compared to last year, I think. Obviously, Boca and River are always going to be favourites to be making the semi-finals at the very least. Um, and I think it's going to be hard to sort of work out just how strong a chance they've got until we're a lot closer to the group stage and they've done all their recruitment and and we see exactly what shape they're in there um both teams could do with a bit of strengthening um but it's obviously hard and given the uh limitations on the clubs uh due to covid but we've seen Boca get marcus rojo 
So they're, they're, that's a, quite a big name signing, even if it's you know maybe not the area of the pitch they really need to strengthen. They could really do with a number nine and maybe freshen it up at fullback as well. Um, but yeah, I think Boca, they're always going to be up there. River as well, they've, they've been... They've done so well to kind of rebuild and to keep it going under their sensational manager, uh, Gajardo. But it, you do feel like they're getting to a stage where so many key players have left, Martinez Cuarta, uh, Quintero, and there's talk about whether Enzo Perez and Nacho Fernandez are going to be around as well. So it feels like they could really do with with adding some players, but they're always going to be a contender. So straight away, you've got those guys who'll be gunning it out for the title. Um, then you've got a couple of sides who, who did really well in the Sudamericana. Defensa y Justicia, I think, will have come back a bit smarter and a bit stronger, having crashed out in, in their, the group stage in their first attempt. And I think just having that win in the Sudamericana is really going to... Um, push them on to, to go one stage better. Obviously, really exciting manager in Crespo in charge of them at the moment. And they're always so good at playing the loan market, taking the guys from the um, bigger clubs who are out of favour or have yet to make a name for themselves. Um, so you know that that model there at the club is, is there and it's going to succeed whoever's in charge and whoever the players are. So they're going to be ones definitely to keep an eye on because they play great football as well. And also Velez, who um, I've got a bit of a soft spot for, so I'm probably going to be a bit more optimistic about them. But um, again, Pellegrino at this level is, is a very good coach and they've kind of maintained the level that they, they had under Gabriel Heinze. And again, a team with loads of good youngsters, really famous for, for bringing lots of young players through. Thiago Almada is obviously the, the one that we uh, we all are going to be looking to to create some magic. But they've got... They've, you know, added some really good midfielders around him. Really solid defence with Gianetti and uh, the Peruvian Abraham, who I'm sure Peter's a fan of as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like them to to certainly give um, whoever's in their group a really good go, and um, and I think they could they could definitely be a tricky uh, opponent for for pretty much anyone. Um, other than that, we've got Racing, um, who you'd imagine would be one of the stronger teams among the Argentinians but they have lost their iconic striker Licha Lopez and also um, Beca Sese has gone out the door as manager and, and they've got um, PC in, in who's a bit of an underwhelming appointment in, in my eyes so they're a side that also needs a bit of uh, freshening up and they could do with some more firepower up front so we'll have to wait and see if they they address that and Argentinos Juniors have been Absolutely fantastic, um, but they have, uh, I don't know, I, I think that they're not necessarily the most fun side to watch and they don't score a lot of goals, they don't concede a lot of goals, but the key issue is that their manager, Diego Dabove, has, has gone to San Lorenzo, who uh, are also in the qualifying stages there. So I'm kind of not expecting too much from Argentinos Juniors and the fact that Dabove is now in charge of San Lorenzo means that if they can get through, they're, you know, they're a big historic name and they've got you know, a, a decent squad there with some good young players coming through as well that maybe San Lorenzo can turn it, turn it around, although I wouldn't put too much hope in them. So yeah, certainly five good um, teams that I think should be, should be making it out of the group stage at least. And how about, how about some of those uh, other clubs um, 
that uh, in Bolivia or, or Venezuela, Simon, are, are you, surely you're looking forward to always ready. Uh, I'm all, I'm always ready for always ready, of course. Um, only, there we go. And not only are they always ready, which is fun, because that's the name, um, they're also investing wisely in Colombians, who I quite like. They've signed Lubia Riascos, who was really good at Millonarios, very exciting, quick forward. They've signed my mate and former teammate at my Sunday league team, AFC Envigado. Uh, it's not on his Wikipedia page. I don't know why. I don't know why he hasn't updated that. Although <laughs> I did notice Adam, for a bit of a laugh, added in that he uh, once played for my Sunday league team at the top of his Wikipedia page. I, I had to go in and delete that because it would have been embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but John Jadon Mosquera, who had been banging them in for Royal Paddy, has moved on to All's Ready. Uh, Mosquera played for Millonarios at 14 years old. He's up there with Falcao as one of the youngest players in the history of Colombian football. Played for Werder Bremen, played in Europe had a serious medical condition, which many almost died at a very young age, but still going into his 30s and has got one in two in Bolivia. So good to see him, uh, always ready. Uh, they've also got the strongest, um, who are the automatic qualifiers for the group stage. And then Bolivar and, and Royal Pari. Royal Pari, for me, always looks like a like an Indian side. So they're, they're, that's fun as well. Looking forward to finding out about them. Um, haven't seen them much before, so I can't offer much more than that. But we know that the the Bolivian sides will always pull up some results, particularly with the help of altitude. And the Venezuelan sides, again, I've been watching quite a lot of Venezuelan football. There's a lot of good young players coming through. The Venezuelan league um, requires teams to field some youth players, and actually this year they're going to require teams to field an under 17 player in their in their side. So that's particularly fun. Um, looking for youth. In terms of the qualifiers from Venezuela, the two automatic group stage qualifiers are Deportivo La Guaira um, and Deportivo Tachira, uh, with Lara and Caracas uh, having to qualify. So some, two of the more traditional Libertadores sides having to go through the qualifying stages. Um, again, the issue with Venezuela is money. The, the economy is not strong. The league isn't planning to restart until like March time. So... Uh, the question is, how many of their better players can these sides hang on to? Um, I think they're hoping not many, uh, given that they, they really need a bit of a turnover of money. So I mentioned Contreras earlier. Caracas obviously keen to, to cash in on him after a good season uh, and with the potential he has. So I'll I'll withhold my judgment on those Venezuelan sides uh, for a couple of weeks. But, uh, you know, there's... There's some quality in Venezuela. Um, it, it's hard financially, um, but they definitely have some good young players coming through uh, who are ones to watch. And uh, Anna, uh, I'm going to throw to you. You know, we can all just name the teams qualified, but Brazil's a bit more complicated. You still got quite a few to be confirmed, no? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the Brazilian round table is like a yo-yo. It goes up, it goes down. You look at it the next day and totally different. So still quite a lot of to-be-confirmed teams to, to qualify, especially for that uh, the first round of the qualification stage. But I think pretty much guaranteed to see some of the, the regulars. We have Flamengo, Flamengo, who is always a threat in this competition. I mean, they're sticking around with Seni as the manager so far. Let's see how that goes. And yeah, they're keeping a lot of their good players up in the midfield. They also have Gabi Gol, the famous Gabi Gol from, from 2019. He's really having a very good season so far. Well, it's almost an end now, but he's having a very, very good season in the Brasileirão. So they could be a big threat. You also have um, Atletico Mineiro, who 
won the competition in 2013. Uh, they bought in Hulk from China, which is, you know, quite a popular move with the club, I think, to have such an iconic player on their team. And it'll be fun to watch them. You know, maybe you'll see another repeat of the, the 2013 when they bought in Ronaldinho for that, for that campaign. So it'd be fun to watch them, see what they can do. Uh, then you have like Sao Paulo who are just have no idea what's going on with Sao Paulo. As of now, I think they're still managerless because they sacked uh, Genese a few days ago. So Sao Paulo is Sao Paulo. I have no words for them. Then you have, let's think, Grêmio. Grêmio are always a threat in this competition. So we have them. Paranaense have fallen, I think. As of now, they have fallen out of the, the contention for the first stage of the Libertadores. So we'll see what happens with them. They had quite a good competition uh, last year, this year. Uh, they made it, I think, up until the round of 16 when they, they lost to River Plate. So it would be nice to see them if they can make it back in. And then you have Santos. Santos is the big question mark right now. They they are 10th in the, the Brasileirão. They really, really haven't been focusing on the competition at all, sort of playing like um, a second team almost in almost all of their matches for the last month. So with about five games left, it'll be really interesting to see what Santos can, can pull out the bag. Uh, Soteldo, I think, is injured at the moment. So is Marinho. And some key players have, have left. Uh, Diego Pituca, he had a good competition. He's gone to Japan, I think. And like you mentioned before, Verissimo has gone to Portugal. So it'll be really interesting to see if Santos can sort of push ahead. The points are really tight so far, so maybe they can do it. I'd really like to see them uh, have another shot at it. So, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. And uh, Peter, yeah, <laughs> maybe you were keeping your head down because you've still got uh, Paraguay and Ecuador to go. Peter, what do you want? Paraguay or Ecuador? You want to talk about Cerro Porteño, Olimpia, Libertad and Guarani? Or do you want to talk about the Ecuadorians? Ooh, I, I, I feel like I should keep the Ecuadorians for you, Simon, because I know how fond you are um, of at least one of those clubs. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in Paraguay, um, you know, frankly, look, again, Usually a country that tends to, let's say, overachieve, right? Or not overachieve, but make runs to the quarterfinals and, and, and usually give some of the big boys some, some of a tough time. I'm looking, you know, usually at like Cerro Porteño, for example, as being one of those sides. Um, but this year, I mean, it's... Uh, hold on, let me just pull it up again because I lost it. Um, um, so yeah, Guarani obviously coming off what happened last year They're they're probably going to be a tough out for anybody in the, in the qualifying rounds. Um, obviously, you know, probably one of the, well, pr probably the only, I think probably challenging side other than maybe Caracas in that first round, I could see them maybe causing a few problems if they get to the second round uh, for sure. And then uh, Libertad, I think Libertad probably have, I would say a relatively straight shot um, into the group stage. They can just avoid one of those Brazilian teams, I feel. Um, although, you know, they obviously did fare pretty well um, against some of the big boys in 2020, so we shall see. Um, but then as for the group stage, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I feel like when it comes to Paraguayan teams, th these are sides that are usually more experienced. And have more experienced players and just have that wit about them, right. To be able to kind of grind out results. So it should be interesting to see for sure. But 
Uh, yeah. What about Ecuador, Simon, for you? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, Independiente del Valle are, are always a team that's great to watch. And they, they're going to have good players. We know they recruit really well. Moises is gone, but I think they've got uh, Marco Angulo, I think, could step up and do a pretty good job stepping into Moises' footsteps. I think he's a very good defensive midfielder, 18 years old, um, very, very classy, very composed. So, yeah, Independiente del Valle will be an interesting one. Um, they're in the second stage of the qualifying round, so they're not quite in the group stage yet. I think we're all hoping they make it to see what they can continue to do in this competition. Uh, Barcelona and LDU, again, two teams that are really interesting, exciting teams. Barcelona this year are going to go straight into the group stage as opposed to last year where they really caught our eye in the qualifying rounds and then let us step down in the group stage. Maybe they can uh, get off to a good start, but in the group stage and qualify for the for the knockout rounds and, and LDU Quito again is a good side. And then the final team joining in the, the first knock, uh, qualifying round will be Universidad Católica. Um, a good side, another good side. So I think Ecuador has got a lot of quality. Uh, and, you know, Tom, tell me about Uruguay and then I will finish off with a bit of Chile because they're not going to do anything in the competition anyway. You know, get the digs in while, Tom, while Adam's not here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going, going all in on, on poor Adam there. But yeah, Uruguay, another one of the countries that's yet to decide it's uh, the teams that are going to be representing them. It's mainly because because of COVID and the lockdown they've had there, they've only just kind of started the Clausura 2020. Um, so they're about four or five games into that at the moment. They're hoping to have that finished by the end of March. Um, so right now we don't exactly know, and, and it's going to be a case of the certainly the, the teams that are going in at the qualifying uh, stage. It's going to be based on their kind of annual overall table, and they're going to decide, I think the... The, the team who are fourth in that will be chosen in a, on the seventh um, based on who at that moment is fourth in the table in the, in the annual um, yeah annual table there. Um, and then a, a couple of weeks later, the third place team will, will get the chance. Obviously, that, that means there's a chance that there's one of these clubs, let's say Peñarol, who are currently occupying third place. They might fancy their chances of getting one of the top two spots and they, and they could potentially turn it down and then back themselves to, to get one of those top spots. So it's it's all up for grabs. But certainly I think we can say that Nacional, um, it would be a shock if, if they aren't in at least one of the one of the stages there, probably in the group stage, they're top of the annual table at the moment. Peñarol are probably going to get in there in some respect, although we know what they'll do in the group stage. They'll maybe win their home games, but they'll lose all their away games and, and go out with about nine or ten points or something like that. That's pretty much what they usually do. Um, and then the other teams to kind of keep an eye out for are um, the Monte, well, Torque Montevideo City, owned by the City Group now, and maybe a, a slightly controversial team to have in there, obviously given their ownership. Um, but they've actually been putting together quite a strong, uh, consistent team and and one that's playing some fairly decent football. Obviously, um, benefits from from the the money there and, and some of the players they could bring in. They've had a kind of rise to, to fame um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see them in in one respect and and certainly the other one who's who's currently occupying fourth place um, and they have a guaranteed spot in the Sudamericana already um, is Rentistas a very small side um, won their first ever title last year um, but they've lost a lot of their key players so I don't think we'll necessarily see a lot of them but um, yeah 
definitely a really intriguing situation uh, to keep keep your eye on because right now your guess is, is as good as anyone's. Okay, and just before we just before we finish, uh, let's have a quick look at the Chilean side. So, uh, Universidad Católica and Union La Calera are qualified for the Libertadores. We're not quite sure yet if they're going to be in the group stage or the knockout round. Um, Católica, in particular, have a, a, a good uh, a good cushion in terms of uh, finishing the top two to break, go straight into the group stage. Calera as well, looking looking in good position with a few games to go to go straight into the group stage. Currently, the other two teams will be Union Española and Palestino, although Universidad de, de Chile are, are pretty close. Antofagasta aren't too far off, O'Higgins. So a few games left in Chile to decide it. Um, Universidad Católica and Union La Calera are definitely in. And then two more. Um, Union Española have a bit of a cushion, so they're probably looking quite good to make it in as well. But... Still to be decided with a couple of games to go there in Chile. Uh, very interesting at the bottom and the top of the Chilean league. So go and, get, go and give it a look. Go and give some Chilean football some love. Um, okay, great. Guys, thank you for joining us today. We're going to finish up. Looking forward to the the new Libertadores season already beginning. We've got the draw. Should have just happened by the time you listen to this. And then we begin the qualifying rounds. Three stages of, of uh, two-legged ties. Then we go into the group stage. So... We're just finishing and we're already beginning again. So look forward to that. We'll follow the, the season as it develops and we'll we'll give you a preview of the group stage and, and probably round up the, the knockout round. So plenty of Libertadores to come. I want to say thank you to, to my contributors today. Uh, Tom, first of all, thanks for joining. Anything you'd like to recommend or perhaps uh, send them towards your Twitter? Yeah, you can just find uh, all the stuff that I'm doing at the moment on my Twitter at TomRobbo89. Uh, plenty of stuff up there, but uh, yeah, nothing too much to plug right now, but just keep your eyes on that. Okay, very good. Anna, thank you for joining. It was excellent to have you on the show. Uh, where can people follow you on Twitter or anything you'd like to point them in the de- direction of or, or say before we, we finish up today? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Had a lot of fun having a good chat with everyone. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ana Goleador. Uh, just usual general chats about football all over South America, just for fun. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Make sure you go give her a follow. Uh, and Peter, thank you for joining us. Uh, anything you'd like to recommend and, and where can people follow you on Twitter? No, thank you for having me on. Always nice to talk about South American football on a broader scale. So pleasure to be on. Uh, you can just follow me on Twitter at GalindoPW and all my work will pop up there, whether it's for Sportsnet or for other outlets. It will be posted there at some point whenever it is uh, up. Okay, excellent. And given that Austin's not here, I think I'll get his plug in for him just in case. So Austin, and I also help him out as well, um, produces a lot of the content for the for the Copa Libertadores. So if you follow at the Libertadores and at the Sudamericana, you can get all of the goals, all of the information, lots of videos, lots of new content, lots of new articles. So if all of the great content we have at World Football Index as well as the Patreon, which you can check out. Uh, We've had a great episode uh, just recently released all about Uruguayan football uh, with Tom and then all about Montevideo uh, with Jessie. I forgot her name on the podcast, which was terribly terribly embarrassing and incredibly awkward given that I've known her for five years. Um, But it's also a lot of fun, lots of music mixed in. I get to go and explore some Uruguayan music. Uh, And there's also an episode about the, the Colombian League. So check that out. You can sign up. 
pay a few quid and you get like 20, 30, 40 hours of content now. You can download it all straight away. Go straight in there, sign up, put your details in. You can download everything that we've recorded on the on the Patreon. So very good. Also, I believe World Football Index have a magazine coming out, uh, which is looking at some of the top youth players. Uh, I contributed a couple of articles on Hamilton Campas, who is excellent, as you'll remember from last this last year's Libertadores. And I also spoke about Jefferson Paz, who has now gone to Italy. So I know what I'm talking about, <laughs> hopefully. Anyway, guys, thank you for listening. I appreciate that. And uh, we'll be back again soon. Goodbye. <laughs>